The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 2 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC2. And this is Secret Church 2, Episode 2. Now, second gospel is Mark. Second gospel is Mark. This is written by John Mark, who was close to, which we've already talked about, he's close to Peter. He wrote it between 65 and 70 A.D. So this was written before the fall of the temple. But it was written during a time where there was a lot of insurrection between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire over them. Obviously, if something's leading up to a battle where the temple and the city of Jerusalem are going to be ravaged, that there's going to be some tension that leads up to that time. And so Mark is writing to Gentile Christians in Rome who were suffering persecution. Mark's writing to Gentile Christians in Rome who were suffering persecution. Obviously, there's some conflict between Rome and, and Judaism. Christianity is this sect of Judaism, so to speak, in many people's eyes. And so they are experiencing some major persecution in Rome. And he's writing to them to encourage them. Now, as a result of that, well, let me, let me show you this. Go to the very end of Mark. Look at Mark chapter 16. What, what's happening is... For the first time, these believe well, not for the first time, but these believers are facing some pretty intense persecution, and many of them are wavering in their faith. When you start to get persecuted, they're starting to wonder, is Christ real? Should we really go on with this? Should we really move forward in our faith in him? I want you to look. Mark chapter 16, you have the resurrection, and then look with me at verse 6. It says, don't be alarmed, he said. This is the the young man, it says in verse 5, speaking to the, those who had come to the tomb, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He, he is not here. See the place where they had laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now, that, that's a picture he's not here. One of my favorite parts of the time I have spent in Jerusalem was we were taking a tour of um, one of the possible sites for the, the tomb where Jesus had been buried. And our guide was an English guide from the United Kingdom. And he said, he started off, he said, I don't know why you all have come here. All of these people make all of these kinds of trips here. There's nothing to see here. Jesus is no longer here. And I thought, man, what a great picture. He's not here. He's risen. You've wasted your time. You're not going to see anything here. He's gone. So that's the picture here. Then, now I want you to picture, if you are reading Mark for the first time, you're in a situation where you are tempted to be quiet and not share your faith with anybody. Listen to where verse 8 leaves us. And this is that point where some people think the book of Mark actually stops. So let's imagine if it does stop here. Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now what if the book stopped right there? You realize what kind of message that puts? The New Testament church, at least some manuscripts who did not have this ending right here, to, to begin to think about what if the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one said anything about it because they were afraid. Mark is reminding us that this is something we must tell people if it stops with us. And the resurrection of Christ is just a historical fact that doesn't expand to the second, third century. I praise God that the believers who read Mark did not walk away saying nothing to anyone. He wrote to these, Jewish, to these Gentile Christians in Rome who were facing persecution. The primary theme in the book of Mark, Jesus is the suffering servant of God. 
We see suffering over and over again mentioned. You see the key verses there. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 38 is talking about the unexpected suffering. When Jesus told his disciples that he was going to experience suffering, and Peter said, pulled Jesus aside and said, maybe you don't, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Jesus said, you don't tell me. I don't know what I'm doing. And he says it pretty, pretty sternly. And he says, this is exactly what I'm doing. All throughout Mark, you see what's called the messianic secret. You see this at a different point. You ever wonder why Jesus wanted to keep himself a secret? These demons start telling about how, how he's Jesus the Christ, and the demons recognize him when nobody else does, and he's like, shh, don't tell anybody. Or sometimes he heals people, and he says, don't tell anybody. Walk away, don't say a thing. Why is he doing that? Because he's got a mission. He's headed to the cross. It's a much different mission than what everybody else had in line for him. Everybody else's agenda was to bring in a Messiah, exalt him, put him up as king, and he's going to take Rome out. So they were not expecting in any way a Messiah who was born to this girl named Mary, raised in a very humble setting, and then, then least of all put on the cross. That's not where the Messiah goes. So it made sense that people were, people were not seeing him as the Messiah many times. And so when people did expose that truth, he said, you wait, I've got a mission that I'm on. And so we see that over and over again, this theme of Jesus being the suffering servant of God, Mark 10, 43 through 45. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Practical advice for study. Keep up. Mark shows Jesus constantly on the move. 41 times he says, and immediately. And immediately Jesus did this, and immediately Jesus did that. You look at Mark chapter 1, you will see a day in the life of Jesus that if you ever think you're busy, just pull out Mark chapter 1. He starts preaching in the morning, finishes up the sermon there. He goes home to some friend's house. Well, the friend's mom is sick, and so he decides, well, I'm going to heal her so she can get up and, and be a part of our time together this afternoon. And then all the, all the town starts coming, and it says the whole town lined up at his door to have demons cast out of them, to be healed of all their diseases. And so all night he just spent time healing everybody in the town. So that's a full day. The beauty of it is Mark chapter 1 verse 35 says Jesus got up very early in the morning and went to a solitary place where he spent time with the Lord. That is the key. God help us to see Mark chapter 135 in the midst of a busy world that we find ourselves in, that we go to a solitary place and we spend time with the Father. Okay, I've got to resist preaching different sermons throughout here. All right, notice, <laughs> notice that almost half of his gospel is devoted to events in the last week of Jesus' life. Last week of Jesus' life, almost half the events are devoted to that. Mark chapter 11, he enters into Jerusalem. He, he takes care of the temple. He starts turning over things there, and we see the picture of Jesus headed to the cross. Overall structure, you see that based around the servant ministry. Now, it's at this point I want to draw your attention. You've got a note there. I want to draw your attention to the synoptic gospels. I'm going to spell that one for you. S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, synoptic, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C. Basically, what that word means, it's a fancy word that means to see together. And what we need to realize when we come to the Gospels is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar to each other. They see the life and ministry of Christ in a very similar way. John is sort of an oddball. He's a loner out there. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. And the confusion basically centers around a couple different questions. First of all, is Mark the primary source for Matthew and Luke? In other words, is Mark the anchor from which Matthew and Luke wrote? There's some evidence that would seem to point to that. 97% of Mark, Mark's words are in Matthew. 97%. 
out of about 660 verses, 600 are there. It's mostly, if you've read Matthew, you've got Mark covered. Now, it's a different perspective, different things emphasized, but it's, it's pretty much Mark plus equals Matthew, okay? Then you've got Luke. 88% of Mark's words are in Luke. 88% of Mark's words are in Luke. So obviously there's something going on. We've got to figure it out, but these guys have gotten together at some point in some way. Now, there's another theory that proposes that there's an unknown source that was a foundation for these books, and they call that unknown source Q. And maybe there's this Q guy out there that wrote something, too, that helps things. Well, we're not sure exactly. And obviously, the life and ministry of Christ wasn't confined to what Matthew, Mark, and Luke were saying about it. And so, obviously, they're working together in some way. But the, the overall thing we need to realize is that they do come together pretty clearly, those three. Now, they're written from different perspectives. We're going to see something really, I think, neat in Luke in just a second about that. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not write their Gospels in isolation from one another. They were connected somehow. Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not write their Gospels in isolation. They were connected together. Now, let's get to Luke. And I want to show you, kind of bring this whole synoptic gospel picture to light. Luke was, writ- Luke was written by Luke, as you already established. He's the, a Gentile physician, which means he's the only Gentile author in the Bible. But this idea that he's a physician, let me show you something. Go with me to uh, Mark chapter 5. Now, if Mark was somewhat of a foundation, why don't you look at Mark chapter 5. And this is going to be an example where... where Books are, these books are written from different perspectives. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 25. This is one of the healings by Jesus. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about this, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because he thought, if I just, she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Jesus goes on to heal her. Okay, that's the story that Mark gives. Now, hold your place here and go over to Luke chapter 8. Let's hear Luke's version of the story. And what I want you to see is if there are any, there's any differences between what Mark said and Luke said. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 42. We'll start about halfway through the verse. It says, as Jesus went on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman who was there, who had been, su- and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Do you notice what Mark put that Luke does not? Look at what Mark said. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. <laughs> so Luke takes this and says. You don't have to tell the story and put a slam on doctors. And so you see that left out in Luke. You know, just a a forgotten little detail. Mark decides it's important. Luke decides for his own reputation, maybe this is not going to be included. So you see the different personalities of the gospel writers coming out in these different stories. Just kind of a neat thing. He was a Gentile physician, a historian, and a companion of, as we've already talked about, he's a companion of Paul. Companion of Paul, written in the 70s or 80s A.D. Again, after this Roman-Jewish war that ravaged the temple. And he's written, it's written to a guy named Theophilus. But it's written primarily, not only for him, but for Gentile Christians. Many people believe Theophilus was a very a strong leader as a Gentile. So it makes sense that all throughout the book of Luke, we would see 
emphasis on, on the role of Gentiles in the mission of Jesus. It would make complete sense that we see that over and over and over again. Because if you are, if you're a, if you're Theophilus, and you're a Gentile, probably at that point a leader in Rome. It's not. It's not going to be good to, to be saved or to find salvation in a Jewish Messiah for you. That doesn't make sense. A Jewish Messiah is not very popular among the people around you. And so Luke is writing to emphasize the Gentile nature of Jesus' mission. That's why Luke wrote the book of Acts. So they go together, the purpose being what he's writing for. The primary theme is that Jesus is the perfect Son of Man who brings salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. Salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. Practical advice for study. I want you to see how the overall structure of the book of Luke leads geographically toward Jerusalem. It's geographically aligned to take Jesus from Galilee to Judea to Perea and then finally to Jerusalem where he's crucified. Now, hold that in your mind. We're going to come back to that later. Notice the emphasis also on the gospel as good news for the poor. Luke emphasizes how Jesus came for every, strata, for every strata of society. You see him emphasizing Jesus' love for women and for children and especially for the poor. You see the parable of the rich fool. You've got a bunch of scriptures listed there. The rich man and Lazarus. You've got the parable of the shrewd manager in uh, Luke chapter 16 over and over again. And we don't know exactly why. What in Luke's audience would cause him to emphasize Jesus' love for the poor and Jesus' warnings against the rich? But I think there's a word there for us today because we live in a context that is incredibly wealthy compared to the rest of the world and we need to heed what Jesus has to say about how we handle the resources he's entrusted to us. That's one of the things we must learn from the book of Luke. Make notes each time you see prayer and the Holy Spirit mentioned. More than any other gospel, it talks about prayer over and over again. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and then you've got the oddball John. It's kind of out there does things a lot different. Written by John, over and over again in the, in the uh, book, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that a great way to identify yourself? If there is anything I want to be identified as, it's being the one who has been loved by Christ. What an incredible picture to find your identification and the love and the value he's placed on you. See, even the name will preach. Sometime, it was written sometime between 70 and 90 A.D., and you've got Matthew writing to Jews, Mark to the Romans. You've got Luke writing to, to, to Greeks mainly. You've got John writing to the world. He is just is universal. You see the world, that word even, mentioned over and over and over again. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Over and over again, cosmos, the world, is mentioned. The primary theme is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Theme verse being John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. He says, I write these things so that you may believe in Christ, basically, so that people might know who he is and believe in him. I would encourage you, word studies are really helpful in the book of John because you see certain words mentioned over and over and over again. Circle or underline some key words that summarize the message of the gospel. And if you're studying the book of John, circle or underline every time you see Father. It's 137 times. Every time you see the next word in that blank there is believe. 98 times. Over and over again, we see John emphasize the difference between faith and unbelief. Between chapter 7 through 12, let me make sure I get this right. Between chapter 7 through 12, over 20 times, John mentions how the Jewish people were rejecting Christ by their unbelief. And you do realize that is the way we reject Christ, by unbelief. 
So we either believe and we trust in him, and it's a verb throughout the book of John, or we say it's not real, one or the other. We can't ride the fence between the two. The world, sending, loving, life, light, darkness, truth, witness, glory, eternal, all of these words are very important throughout the book. Notice the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am, remember, was the way God had revealed himself in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3. Who do I tell them sent me? Tell them I am sent you. And so when Jesus gets to the book of John over and over again, we see it highlighted, him associating himself with the God of the Old Testament. Abraham, in, in John chapter 8, verse 58, he tells a group of people that were anti-Jesus. He basically said, before Abraham was born, I am. And that doesn't sound like that wild of a statement for us. If I were to stand up before you tonight and say, before Abraham was born, I am. You would say, you are weird. What, what, are you, what are you trying to communicate to us? But he was making a direct reference to his divinity, and that's why they wanted to stone him right after that. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. You are the branches. Over and over again, he's showing these incredible pictures of who God is in the flesh. John highlights the incarnation from the very beginning. In the beginning was the... The Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Uses seven different signs, seven signs to demonstrate the deity of Christ. All of these miracles that are listed here are intentionally designed by John to show the deity of Christ. But pay attention close, though, also to John's depiction of the humanity of Christ. We see Jesus tired in John. We see him thirsting in John with the woman at the well. We see him weeping in John chapter 11, verse 35 the most memorized verse in the book of John. That's the book of John. Now on to Acts. We've got the Gospels. We've got one more, one more picture of historical narrative, and it gives us a transition from the story of Christ to the story of the church. Luke wrote it, written by Luke. It's kind of part two of his Gospel. You might put a note in chapter 16, verse 10. He uses that first pronoun, we. He kind of brings himself in and makes sure we know that it's him who's writing this. I love this picture. In, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, it starts off by saying what Jesus began to do. When you look at Acts chapter 1, let's, in fact, let's turn to it. Look at Acts chapter 1. This is a great picture. He says, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and you might even circle these, these, uh, this word. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, that's what he began to do. So obviously the next thing he's talking about is what Jesus continued to do. The only problem is after verse 11, Jesus checks out of the picture. He ascends into heaven. How was Luke only the beginning of what Jesus did? The beauty of the book of Luke is it's still Jesus operating. He's doing it through his spirit in the church. Jesus is active throughout this book. This is what he continued to do based on the gospel of Luke where he began his work. The primary theme is the gospel spreads universally through the church and the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the key words there, not only universally, it's going to all nations, but through the church. Because what we're going to see in the first seven chapters of the book of Luke is basically the Jewish rejection of Jesus. It's finalized in the picture of Stephen being stoned because of what he proclaimed about Christ, the Sanhedrin. 
It's finalized that kind of picture, and now the word begins to scatter to Judea and Samaria, eventually to the ends of the earth. Key verses, Acts 1-8, which is basically an outline for the whole book, and chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, is a very pivotal passage for the church. Practical advice for study. See how the overall structure leads geographically away from Jerusalem. And remember, the gospel of Luke headed us toward Jerusalem. Now, book of Acts is headed away from Jerusalem. It all centers together on Jerusalem. Death, resurrection, Holy Spirit comes down, and now the gospel goes out from Jerusalem. So you basically got a kind of a triangle effect going on between Luke and the book of Acts. So see that structure. In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We see the gospel in the last part of Luke going to Asia, Europe, Rome. It's going everywhere. Again, make notes of every time you see prayer, the Holy Spirit mentioned. Notice the repetition of two important things. First of all, salvation. It's emphasized over and over and over again, the salvation that Jesus brings through the Holy Spirit. And then notice the progress reports, the progress reports regarding the advancement of the gospel. Because over and over again, you see Luke making it very clear that the gospel had made it to Jerusalem, the gospel had made it to Judea and Samaria, he'd made it, it had made it to Syria, Asia Minor, Europe, and Rome. It made it to all those different places, and he pauses each time to say, now the gospel was there, and it was moving on. The gospel was there, and it was moving on. And see, in the different speeches of Acts, how the gospel is contextualized in different settings to reach different people. This is one of the great things when you're studying the book of Acts. Look at, look at the first Christian sermon, Peter, and how he addressed his audience. And then look at how he addressed his audience even in Acts 3 and 4 when they were beginning to experience persecution. And then you get to Stephen, the way he addresses his audience and what he says about the gospel. And then you get to Paul, for example, in Acts chapter 17, speaking to the pagan Areopagus. All of them speaking the same gospel, but it's spoken in different ways. It's a beautiful picture of the mission of the church to realize that we have the same gospel with countries, all our, our believers all around the world. But the way we speak that gospel, the way we share that gospel is different all around the world. People do things differently around the world when communicating the gospel. We were joking around about that today at lunch when Johnny and I were talking. He said, you know, there was somebody at the restaurant we, had, we, had, we were eating at who came up and said, hey, pastor, how are you? Um, a member of the church here. And uh, Johnny said, you know, where, where I'm from, you don't, you, don't, you don't say hello to the pastor in public because you like the pastor. And the last thing the pastor wants you doing is coming up to him in a restaurant saying, hey, pastor, tell us about the meeting tonight. We can't wait to get together. No, shh, not the pastor. So you, you do things different. It's contextualized, ministry contextualized in different places. It's okay to call me pastor. Don't call Johnny pastor. All right, so see that in the different speeches in the book of, Luke's, book of Luke. Okay, that's the story of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. 60% of the New Testament right there. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.